Section 8 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. James Van Arteveld leads a Flemish revolt, A.D. 1337-1340. Francis P. G. Guizot. Having defeated the Flemings at mont le in 1304, Philip the Fair of France found that they were unsubdued and ready to renew their war against him. Therefore he very soon acknowledged their independence under their count, Robert de Bethune. But Philip continually violated the treaty he had made, and just before his death, 1314, he again began hostilities against Flanders. Little of historical importance occurred in that country between the death of Philip the Fair and the accession of Philip of Valois, 1328. His first act was to take up the cause of Louis de Nevers, then Count of Flanders, whom the independent burghers of most of the chief cities had united to deprive of his territories, leaving him only Ghent for a refuge. In the first year of his reign, Philip gained a victory over the Flemish weavers at Cassel and laid all of Flanders at the feet of its rejected count. In 1338 began the Hundred Years' War, arising from the claim of Edward III of England to the French throne. Edward's most important measure in preparation for the war was the securing of an alliance with the Flemish burghers, whose French count, Louis de Nevers, had gained nothing in their affections through the humiliation of Cassel, which confirmed his rule. The hated count showed his hostility to Edward, as well as his spite against his own subjects, by various petty acts which interfered with the commerce and industry of both Flanders and England. At last, by prohibiting the exportation of wool to Flanders, Edward reduced the Flemings to despair and forced them to fling themselves into his arms. Many of them emigrated to England, where they helped to lay the foundation of manufactures. But the Flemish towns burst into insurrection and proceeded to organized action in the manner here related by Guizot, who draws largely upon the narrative of Poissard. The Flemings bore the first brunt of that war, which was to be so cruel and so long. It was a lamentable position for them, their industrial and commercial prosperity was being ruined, their security at home was going from them, their communal liberties were compromised, divisions set in among them, by interest and habitual intercourse they were drawn toward England. But the Count, their lord, did all he could to turn them away from her, as many among them were loath to separate themselves entirely from France. Burghers of Ghent, as they chatted in their thoroughfares and at the crossroads, said one to another that they had heard much wisdom, to their mind, from a burgher who was called James Van Ardeveld, who was a brewer of beer. They had heard him say that, if he could obtain a hearing and credit, he would in a little while restore Flanders to good estate, and they would recover all their gains without standing ill with the King of France or the King of England. These sayings began to get spread abroad insomuch that a quarter or half the city was informed thereof, especially the small folk of the commonalty, whom the evil touched most nearly. They began to assemble in the streets, and it came to pass that one day after dinner, Several went from house to house calling for their comrades, and saying, Come and hear the wise man's counsel. On December 26, 1337, they came to the house of the said James Van Artveld, and found him leaning against his door. Far off as they were when they first perceived him, they made him a deep obeisance, and said, Dear sir, we are come to you for counsel, for we are told that by your great and good sense you will restore the country of Flanders to good case. So tell us how. Then James Van Artveld came forward, and said, Sirs comrades, I am a native and burgher of this city, and here I have my means. Know that I would gladly aid you with all my power, you and all the country. If there were here a man who would be willing to take the lead, 
I would be willing to risk body and means at his side, and if the rest of ye be willing to be brethren, friends, and comrades to me, to abide in all manners at my side, notwithstanding that I am not worthy of it, I will undertake it willingly. Then said all with one voice, We promise you faithfully to abide at your side in all matters, and to therewith adventure body and means, for we know well that in the whole countship of Flanders there is not a man but you worthy so to do. Then Van Artevelde bound them to assemble on the next day, but one, in the grounds of the monastery of the Loke, which had received numerous benefits from the ancestors of Sohir of Courtrai, whose son-in-law Van Artevelde was. This bold burgher of Ghent, who was born about 1285, was sprung from a family the name of which had been for a long while inscribed in their city upon the register of industrial corporations. His father, John Van Artevelde, a cloth worker, had been several times over-sheriff of Ghent, and his mother, Mary Von Grote, was great-aunt to the grandfather of the illustrious publicist called in history Grotius. James Van Artevelde in his youth accompanied Count Charles of Valois, brother of Philip the Handsome, upon his adventurous expeditions in Italy, Sicily, and Greece, and to the island of Rhodes, and it had been close by the spots where the soldiers of Marathon and Salamis had beaten the armies of Darius and Xerxes, that he had heard of the victory of the Flemish burghers and workmen attacked in 1302 at Courtrai by the splendid army of Philip the Handsome. James Van Artevelde, on returning to his country, had been busy with his manufactures, his fields, the education of his children, and Flemish affairs up to the day when, at his invitation, the burghers of Ghent thronged the meeting on December 28, 1337, in the grounds of the monastery of Boulogne. There he delivered an eloquent speech, pointing out unhesitatingly, but temperately, the policy which he considered good for the country. Forget not, he said, the might and glory of Flanders. Who, pray, shall forbid that we defend our interests by using our rights? Can the King of France prevent us from treating with the King of England? And may we not be certain that if we were to treat with the King of England, the King of France would not be the less urgent in seeking our alliance? Besides, have we not with us all the communes of Brabant, of Hainault, of Holland, and of Zealand? The audience cheered these words, the commune of Ghent forthwith assembled, and on January 3rd, 1337, re-established the offices of captains of parishes according to olden usage, when the city was exposed to any pressing danger. It was carried that one of these captains should have the chief government of the city, and James Van Artevelde was at once invested with it. From that moment, the conduct of Van Artevelde was ruled by one predominant idea, to secure free and fair commercial intercourse for Flanders with England, while observing a general neutrality in the war between the kings of England and France, and to combine so far all the communes of Flanders in one and the same policy. And he succeeded in his twofold purpose. On April 29, 1338, the representatives of all the communes of Flanders, the city of Bruges numbering among them 108 deputies, repaired to the castle of Mau, a residence of Count Louis, and then James Van Artevelde set before the Count what had been resolved upon among them. The Count submitted, and swore that he would thenceforth maintain the liberties of Flanders in the state in which they had hitherto existed. In the month of May following, a deputation, consisting of James Van Artevelde and other burghers appointed by the cities of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, scoured the whole of Flanders, from Balliol to Termond, and from Ninove to Dunkirk, to reconcile the good folk of the communes to the Count of Flanders, as well for the Count's honor as for the peace of the country. Lastly, on June 10, 1338, a treaty was signed at Anvers between the deputies of the Flemish communes and the English ambassadors, the latter declaring, We do all to wit that we have negotiated the way and substance of friendship with the good folk of the communes of Flanders, in form and manner hereinafter following. 
First, they shall be able to go and buy the wools and other merchandise which have been exported from England to Holland, Zealand, or any other place whatsoever, and all traders of Flanders who shall repair to the ports of England shall be there safe and free in their persons and their goods, just as in any other place where their ventures might bring them together. Item, we have agreed with the good folk and with all the common country of Flanders, that they must not mix nor intermeddle in any way, by assistance in men or arms, in the wars of our lord the king, and the noble Sir Philip of Valois, who holdeth himself for king of France. Three articles following regulated in detail the principles laid down in the first two, and, by another charter, Edward Third ordained that all stuffs marked with the seal of the city of Ghent might travel freely in England, without being subject, according to allage and quality, to the control to which all foreign merchandise was subject. Van Artevelde was right in telling the Flemings that, if they treated with the King of England, the King of France would be only the more anxious for their alliance. Philip of Valois and even Count Louis of Flanders, when they got to know of the negotiations entered into between the Flemish communes and King Edward, redoubled their offers and promises to them. But when the passions of men have taken full possession of their souls, words of concession and attempts at accommodation are nothing more than postponements or lies. Philip, when he heard about the conclusion of a treaty between the Flemish communes and the King of England, sent word to Count Louis that this James Van Artevelde must not, on any account, be allowed to rule or even live, for if it were for so long, the Count would lose his land. The Count, very much disposed to accept such advice, repaired to Ghent and sent for Van Artevelde to come and see him at his hotel. He went, but with so large a following that the Count was not at the time at all in a position to resist him. He tried to persuade the Flemish burgher that, if he would keep a hand on the people so as to keep them to their love for the King of France, he having more authority than anyone else for such a purpose, much good would result to him, mingling, besides, with this address, some words of threatening import. Van Artevelde, who was not the least afraid of the threat, and who at heart was fond of the English, told the Count that he would do as he had promised the communes. Hereupon he left the Count, who consulted his confidants as to what he was to do in this business, and they counseled him to let them go and assemble their people, saying that they would kill Van Artevelde secretly or otherwise. And indeed, they did lay many traps and made many attempts against the captain, but it was of no avail, since all the commonalty was for him. When the rumor of these projects and these attempts was spread abroad in the city, the excitement was extreme, and all the burghers assumed white hoods, which was the mark peculiar to the members of the commune when they assembled under their flags, so that the count found himself reduced to assuming one, for he was afraid of being kept captive at Ghent, and, on the pretext of a hunting party, he lost no time in gaining his castle of Mal. The burghers of Ghent had their minds still filled with their late alarm when they heard that by order, it was said, of the King of France, Count Louis had sent and beheaded at the castle of Rupelmonde, in the very bed in which he was confined by his infirmities, their fellow citizen, Sohir of Courtrai, Van Artevelde's father-in-law, who had been kept for many months in prison for his intimacy with the English. On the same day, the Bishop of Saint-Louis and the Abbot of Saint-Denis had arrived at Tournai, and had superintended the reading out in the marketplace of a sentence of excommunication against the Gentees. It was probably at this date that Van Artevelde, in his vexation and disquietude, assumed in Ghent an attitude threatening and despotic even to tyranny. He had continually after him, says Froissart, sixty or eighty armed varlets, among whom were two or three who knew some of his secrets. When he met a man whom he hated or had in suspicion, this man was at once killed, for Van Artevelde had given this order to his varlets. The moment I meet a man, and make such and such a sign to you, slay him without delay, however great he may be, without waiting for more speech. In this way he had many great masters slain. And as soon as these sixty varlets had taken him home to his hotel, 
Each went to dinner at his own house, and the moment dinner was over they returned and stood before his hotel and waited in the street, until that he was minded to go and play and take his pastime in the city, and so they attended him to supper-time. And know that each of these hirelings had per diem four groschen of Flanders for their expenses and wages, and he had them regularly paid from week to week, and even in the case of all that were most powerful in Flanders, knights, esquires, and burghers of the good cities, whom he believed to be favorable to the Count of Flanders, them he banished from Flanders, and levied half their revenues. He had levies made of rents, of dues on merchandise, and all the revenues belonging to the Count, whatever it might be in Flanders and he dispersed them at his will, and gave them away without rendering any account. And when he would borrow of any burghers on his word for payment, there was none that durst say him nay. In short, there was never in Flanders, or in any other country, duke, count, prince, or other, who can have had a country at his will as James Van Artevelde had for a long time. It is possible that, as some historians have thought, Froissart, being less favorable to burghers than to princes, did not deny himself a little exaggeration in this portrait of a great burgher patriot, transformed by the force of events and passions into a demagogic tyrant. While the Count of Flanders, having vainly attempted to excite an uprising against Van Artevelde, was being forced, in order to escape from the people of Bruges, to mount his horse in hot haste, at night and barely armed, and to flee away to Saint-Domer, Philippe of Valois and Edward III were preparing on either side for the war which they could see drawing near. Philip was vigorously at work on the Pope, the Emperor of Germany, and the Prince's neighbors of Flanders, in order to raise obstacles against his rival or rob him of his allies. He ordered that short-lived meeting of the States-General, about which we have no information left us, save that it voted the principle that no taillage could be imposed on the people if urgent necessity or evident utility should not require it, unless by concession of the Estates. Philip, as chief of feudal society rather than of the nation which was forming itself little by little around the lords, convoked at Amiens all his vassals, great and small, lake or cleric, placing all his strength in their cooperation, and not caring at all to associate the country itself in the affairs of the government. Edward, on the contrary, while equipping his fleet and amassing treasure at the expense of the Jews and Lombard usurers, was assembling his parliament, talking to it of the important and costly war, for which he obtained large subsidies, and accepting, without making any difficulty, the vote of the Commons House, which expressed a desire to consult their constituents upon this subject, and begged him to summon an early Parliament, to which there should be elected, in each county, two knights taken from among the best landowners of their counties. The King set out for the Continent, the Parliament met and considered the exigences of the war by land and sea, in Scotland and in France, traders, shipowners, and mariners were called and examined, and the forces determined to be necessary were voted. Edward took the field, pillaging, burning, and ravaging, destroying all the country for twelve or fourteen leagues in extent, as he himself said in a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury. When he set foot on French territory, Count William of Hainaut, his brother-in-law, and up to that time his ally, came to him and said that he would ride with him no farther, for that his presence was prayed and required by his uncle the King of France, to whom he bore no hate, and whom he would go and serve in his own kingdom as he had served King Edward on the territory of the Emperor, whose vicar he was, and Edward wished him Godspeed. Such was the binding nature of feudal ties that the same lord held himself bound to pass from one camp to another, according as he found himself upon the domains of one or the other of his suzerains in a war one against the other. Edward continued his march towards St. Quentin, where Philip had at last arrived with his allies, the kings of Bohemia, Navarre, and Scotland after delays which had given rise to a great scandal and murmurs throughout the whole kingdom. The two armies, with a strength, according to Froissart, 
of 100,000 men on the French side and 44,000 on the English, were soon facing each other near Bois-en-Fosse, a large burg of Picardy. A herald came from the English camp to tell the king of France that the king of England demanded of him battle, to which demand, says Froissart, the king of France gave willing assent and accepted the day which was fixed at first for Thursday the 21st, and afterward for Saturday the 25th of October, 1339. To judge from the somewhat tangled accounts of the chroniclers and of Froissart himself, neither of the two kings was very anxious to come to blows. The forces of Edward were much inferior to those of Philip, and the former had accordingly taken up, as it appears, a position which rendered attack difficult for Philip. There was much division of opinion in the French camp. Independently of military grounds, a great deal was said about certain letters from Robert, king of Naples, a mighty necromancer and full of mighty wisdom, it was reported, who, after having several times cast their horoscopes, had discovered, by astrology and from experience, that if his cousin, the king of France, were to fight the king of England, the former would be worsted. In thus disputing and debating, says Froissart, the time passed till full midday. A little afterward a hare came leaping across the fields and rushed among the French. Those who saw it began shouting and making a great halloo. Those who were behind thought that those in front were engaging in battle, and several put on their helmets and gripped their swords. Thereupon several knights were made, and the Count of Hainault himself made fourteen, who were thenceforth nicknamed Knights of the Hare. Whatever his motive may have been, Philip did not attack, and Edward promptly began a retreat. They both dismissed their allies, and during the early days of November Philip fell back upon San Quentin, and Edward went and took up his winter quarters at Brussels. For Edward, it was a serious check not to have dared to attack the king whose kingdom he made a pretense of conquering, and he took it grievously to heart. At Brussels he had an interview with his allies and asked their counsel. Most of the princes of the Low Countries remained faithful to him, and the Count of Hainaut seemed inclined to go back to him, but all hesitated as to what he was to do to recover from the check. Van Artevelde showed more invention and more boldness. The Flemish communes had concentrated their forces not far from the spot where the two kings had kept their armies looking at one another, but they had maintained a strict neutrality, and at the invitation of the Count of Flanders, who promised them that the King of France would entertain all their claims, Artevelde and Bradel, the deputies from Ghent and Bruges, even repaired to Courtrai to make terms with him. But as they got there, nothing but ambiguous engagements and evasive promises, they let the negotiation drop. And, while Count Louis was on his way to rejoin Philip at Saint-Quentin, Artevelde, with the deputies from the Flemish communes, started for Brussels. Edward, who was already living on very confidential terms with him, told him that if the Flemings were minded to help him to keep up the war and go with him whithersoever he would take them, they should aid him to recover Lille, Douai, and Bethune, then occupied by the King of France. Artevelde, after consulting his colleagues, returned to Edward, and, Dear sir, said he, you have already made such requests to us, and verily, if we could do so while keeping our honor and faith, we would do as you demand. But we be bound, by faith and oath, and on a bond of two millions of florins entered into with the Pope, not to go to war with the King of France without incurring a debt of the amount of that sum, and a sentence of excommunication. But if you do that which we are about to say to you, if you will be pleased to adopt the arms of France, and quarter them with those of England, and openly call yourself King of France, we will uphold you for the true King of France." You, as King of France, shall give us quittance of our faith, and then we will obey you as King of France, and will go whithersoever you shall ordain. This prospect pleased Edward mightily, but it irked him to take the name and arms of that of which he had as yet won no title. He consulted his allies. Some of them hesitated, but his most privy and especial friend, Robert d'Artois, strongly urged him to consent to the proposal. 
so a French prince and a Flemish burgher prevailed upon the king of England to pursue, as an assertion of his avowed rights, the conquest of the kingdom of France. King, prince, and burgher fixed Ghent as their place of meeting for the official conclusion of the alliance, and there, in January 1340, the mutual engagement was signed and sealed. The king of England assumed the arms of France quartered with those of England, and thenceforth took the title King of France. End of section 8